Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. Hey, Knob Twiddlers. I'm thrilled to share that season three of the Girls Twiddling Knobs podcast is sponsored by the lovely folks at Isotope. Now, Isotope design award-winning audio plugins, and I'm actually using some of the fabulous tools inside their RX9 software to get my voice sounding crystal clear inside today's episode. And when you use the code GIRLSPOD10, you'll get 10% off any plugin purchase on their site, excluding subscriptions and a whole free month of their amazing Music Production Suite Pro instead of the standard seven-day trial. Just go to isotope.com forward slash girlspod to find out more. Because I, I was finding performing as myself, then I was finding issues with how I felt on stage and what I felt I was expected or what I expected from myself through the kind of lens of women in music and women in, you know, sort of contemporary culture and started to just get kind of get sick with that as well. So I just thought, look, I don't want to kill my love for music because I hate how I feel on stage. So I just sort of, I just took a stop check again and just and just wrote a list of all the things I hated and all the things I wanted out of music and all the things I wanted to kind of be able to explore. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel, and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Well, hello, knob twiddlers, and welcome back to Girls Twiddling Knobs. But just before we get stuck into this week's episode, I wanted to make sure you'd come across my new wish quiz. After answering just a few easy but specific questions, you'll get matched with your perfect vocal mic. Yep, no trawling through the internet, scrolling through thousands of online reviews and losing all sense of time and space. Just a quick, easy 45 second quiz to discover the vocal mic that will suit your voice, your setup and your budget. If that sounds like something you wish you'd had months or even years ago, 
just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz. Oh, and did I mention you'll even receive a free bonus video recorded in my very own home studio showing you how to position your mic for the best results? Just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz and get ready to meet your perfect vocal mic. But on with today's episode, and I'm excited to bring you this one because I'm joined by the fabulous Gazelle Twin, aka Elizabeth Bernholtz. Now, I have to admit up front, dear listener, that I am a massive Gazelle Twin fan, as in she's one of my go-to artists I'll put on at the beginning of my day and happily listen to for hours as I work away, like when I'm writing this intro, for example. And by the end of this episode, I think she'll be one of your favourite artists too, Not only is her music so rich and infused with atmosphere and character, but she's also incredibly thoughtful when she talks about her work. Her artist persona, Gazelle Twin, actually came about as a way of channelling the anger felt after a condescending confrontation with a clarinetist, as you'll hear in our chat. And while it doesn't sound like a pleasant exchange, I am glad she was able to harness that creativity into what has emerged as some of the most interesting music and just art in general in the UK in the 21st century, in my humble opinion. We also talk about the reissue of her first album, The Entire City, which also includes a collection of new tracks called The Wasteland, which is out on April the 8th, 2022. And this is one of our longer episodes. Elizabeth was really generous with her time. So settle down, get comfortable and let's meet Gazelle Twin. Gazelle Twin, Elizabeth, welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today because like I said before, I am a big Gazelle Twin fan, but I also think that you'll have lots to share with the listeners, not just about your music, but other things too, about being a musician and what that looks like and how your path has been forged. So maybe we could start there with how did you first get into music? Oh, it's a big question. I think there isn't really a sort of clear point for me because it was kind of around my whole life I think even in utero I was my mum was playing music through (laughs) through speakers into her tummy so it was always there for me and I had a very nurturing childhood with lots of access to music and musical instruments and musical parents and also through my education so it just really was there it was just part of my life and became more and more kind of integral to me as I grew up really in sort of in finding my place in, in the world, I suppose. Yeah, so so was it something that you're drawn to because it made you feel that sense of belonging or that sense of being present? Yeah, probably, yeah. I think, um, I mean, the, the, the sort of importance of it or the, the function of it maybe changed through my life. I think when I reached my teens, it was kind of peak, you know, sort of self-help and, you know, channeling my kind of, you know, my experiences and my feelings. And I think it's just as a, ch- as a child, sort of before a, being a teenager, I, it was more about kind of a, finding where to belong and finding confidence and discovering, you know, talents in myself that, you know, that I felt maybe were lacking elsewhere, socially, whatever, because I had a quite a sort of strange kind of mostly negative experience in school so it it was it was always kind of a positive thing it was a it was a positive and a constant positive in my life music from the word go so and that's still the case that's still where it is in my life so so yeah it's lucky very lucky 
Yeah, I think lots of people will relate to that. You know, there's so many musicians where music is the refuge or the therapy or, you know, and especially if, like you're saying at school, school's not a particularly easy place to be for various reasons. You know, for me, like I, I had dyslexia all the way through school and I really struggled with, you know, all the regular subjects that you're supposed to be good at. But music was the one that just came naturally, you know. Yeah. But I know that for some people it's bullying or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I'm I'm sure there's lots of people that can relate to that. So how about, you know, once you did you did you go and do a music degree? Yeah, I, I did eventually. I, I kind of never really studied music formally at school. I kind of at the time my first instrument really that I learned was the flute or the recorder and then the flute. By the time I got to sort of 13, 14, I was kind of not interested in playing classical flute solos anymore I was just you know trying to sort of fit into you know the wily kind of groups at school and you know it just didn't really fit in there so I kind of just quit and then didn't do GCSE music did not like the teacher at the school that I went to there were a lot of barriers that I just I, I was just kind of kept music for my own kind of personal hobby I didn't really go into it academically there but you know when I got to the end of my A levels I kind of was getting more and more into music and I was I was creating my own music and I'd already decided really by the by the end of that sort of two years that I wanted to study music at uni so I had to end up sort of taking another year go and learn some music theory learn piano in order to get you know a basic kind of music qualification and then into get into uni I had to do an A-level as well so I had to take quite a bit of time to just go and study it properly which was great actually it really it was really great to just have that extra time so yeah eventually I did a course at Sussex University. Oh okay so hence why you ended up in Brighton then? Yes. Yeah Yeah. oh that makes sense yeah and and what kind of music were you making though you said you know I during A level I was making music myself what was that with and what kind of form was that taking? So my dad had a, a computer in his in his home study and my brother at the time was studying, also studying a music and art degree in Nottingham and he was very influential to me and sort of showed me how to use Cubase, like the really early form of Cubase. Before that, I was using kind of cassettes, you know, and synth, the electronic synths and just layering up voice and just kind of you know, just doing stuff in my bedroom, very DIY, using sellotape to sort of, you know, overdub and stuff like that. So I just had a very rudimentary introduction to it and then started to just get really inspired by what I could do on a computer. And most of the time I was just trying to kind of create film music, actually. I was listening to a lot of film music and a lot of choral music at the time. And it was just that that kind of satisfaction of kind of emulating that music that I was hearing. I was using one of those... You know, do you remember those straw microphones, those kind of really old PC microphones? Yeah, like on a yeah. Long, a long oh my stand, God. <laughs> the beige ones. Yeah I, yeah. I was just using one of them and I'm, I think I recorded like a a whole mass <laughs> of one wow. of, on one of those. I've still got the recording somewhere. And um, I just, yeah, I just got creative with it and just really enjoyed, enjoyed doing that and learning how to, you know, very rudimentary, but learning how to sort of add reverb and, multi-track and yeah it was all really basic but I just got really into it and I think I just knew that's what I wanted to end up doing. Like when you first start using that stuff even though it, it is rudimentary in a way but obviously there's so much you can do so much subtlety in there you know in so so many ways you can take that but it is absolutely amazing I mean it's just 
transforms everything that you think is possible. You know, when you hear even just putting, bl- like blasting a reverb over something. Yeah. I remember that moment as well. And I, I remember being on Pro Tools back in 2001 or something and just being like, oh my God. Yeah. I do this all the time, you know. Yeah, anywhere as well. Yeah. Like, like being in a cathedral and yeah, it's just, it's incredible. It's really, yeah, it's a really liberating moment. And and yeah, and, and depending on what you're into. So, because I was really kind of, I guess, borderline obsessed with choral music and just the effect of choral music kind of as a, you know, as kind of a spiritual thing as well. And, and I just wanted to recreate it. And it was kind of that natural desire to recreate that kind of got me cemented kind of production style and, and you know, the way I compose now as well. So, and, I, you know, all of that was kind of before a proper education in music where, you know, it was just kind of pure creation and pure kind of instinct rather than kind of too much thinking and and stuff so yeah I really value that time because it's like those first steps into something that is kind of from your body from the deepest sort of reserves and then you know education is great for shaping and for learning and for progressing but I always get back to that kind of time where it was just pure creation and yeah just 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 channeling just from whatever source that you know was was there at the time so so yeah and technology is amazing for that and it's just getting better and better to be able to do that yeah I mean I think a lot of people will will think that it's not you know will think it's the opposite if if somebody's maybe had some bad experiences you know especially if they've had some bad experiences in studios for example or in a music tech class or something like that but once someone's able to freely explore it like you're describing it really is intuitive and it really is something that you can kind of play your heart out on, much like if you started exploring a, an acoustic instrument, you know. But obviously the possibilities are just vast with music technology. But yeah, I think it's a good it's a good reminder for people that actually it, it can be incredibly heartfelt and emotional and something that's even gut-wrenching and you know, you can you can explore the nooks and crannies of your soul through these incredible sounds that you can find. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you really went on that journey quite early on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, before the computer stuff, it was, like I said, it was just recording into a little cassette machine and recreating sort of, not experimental, but more kind of like um, sad electronic song, you know, Portishead, basically, (laughs) trying to recreate Portishead songs (laughs) with my tiny little Casio synth and my my cassettes. But yeah, but it's it's just, I guess it's, you know, it's no different to kind of how composers work traditionally either. It's that kind of, it's quite a personal, intimate thing where you're just, you know, you're kind of letting something flow through you. And, you know, the tools you use to create that are, are kind of arbitrary, really, but it's the same thing. But it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's all about you and, and how, how, you capture these ideas and where it takes you. So when you went to Sussex, did you do a composition degree or was it something more aligned with technology? It was just a straight sort of BA music course. It was also at the time, because it wasn't possible to do kind of a full-time music course, it was kind of topped up with cultural studies. So it was kind of, it was kind of a weird course. I probably, it probably wasn't perfect for me, to be honest. I think a music technology, in hindsight, music technology course would have been probably better for me or even a film music course. But at the time, I kind of had it in my head I was going to be kind of a traditional composer and I was going to be, you know, scoring vast, you know, scores and sitting in front of orchestras and, 
you know, having recordings on Decca and stuff like that. That was that was my kind of in my head, my sort of plan and making film scores and stuff. High fiving John Williams, yeah, hi, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, so yeah, so it was kind of good. It was mostly focused on 20th century classical music, which was actually really fascinating. And I had some amazing tutors, Martin Butler and Ed Hughes and Bjorn Holler. And just all of their approach was just really personable and it wasn't pressured. It was just fun and interesting and a brilliant time. I had some great peers there as well. It was a really positive, lovely time. I just... I probably just didn't do enough work, really. I think a lot of the time I was doing extracurricular stuff, but I think by the time I reached the end of the degree, I was kind of already thinking, yeah, I don't really don't, I don't really want to do the academic composer thing. I don't really fit into this at all. And I was kind of like itching to just wait until I could get out and get on with like going back to doing things on my, you know, on my computer or, or you know, any which way I felt like doing and, and performing as well. I think I missed performing because I didn't do a lot of it at, at uni, but it was a great experience. And, you know, looking at how hard it is to get to uni now, I'm, I'm very grateful I could do it, really. Yeah. What was it about that traditional composer model that didn't attract you then in the end? So, yeah, I was doing a couple of extracurricular things around Brighton and these were all really brilliant as well. And this is not to put anybody down in this sort of situation, but I think I was just finding, I think it was just very, very quickly revealing the sort of patriarchal structure of it all and the kind of lack of women. I didn't know, I don't think there was a single other woman on my course that that was interested in composing or even doing music beyond the degree. I was a little bit older, maybe I was a little bit more more kind of driven in my ambitions and whereas some people go to university and they, they like the idea of a degree but it's not necessarily what they're planning on doing it. Or they might become, you know, a music therapist or a teacher, which is all amazing. But I knew, you know, I wanted to do something. I wanted to be a composer or perform or whatever. And I so I was kind of really eager to sort of get loads of experience and I just wasn't finding the opportunities and perhaps because I wasn't tradition I wasn't kind of academically that kind of well-educated as well I was finding it you know a few barriers to sort of being able to realize just simple things like having music performed and you know being able to have a recording of something or just to try out ideas with real instruments and real musicians it wasn't anything really to do with the university it was more just sort of discovering the limitations both within myself but also just within the, the structure and the kind of the traditions of things and I just didn't really like that it felt a bit fusty and a little bit kind of like boring really if I'm honest it didn't it didn't feel exciting like and 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 liberating like composing should be and music should be it was all about kind of oh well you know if you have to you have to submit this thing to this thing then you you know you might get a performance and I don't know it was just all really kind of arduous I just thought I'd rather just hear it now you know I just wanted to kind of have that instant rush really and I suppose that's exactly what computers give you yeah and, and I think you know there's that sort of practical like you say computers will give you that instant most of the time you know that instant feedback of oh this sounds like this but then also you, you're making a very valid point that in classical composition still it it is very patriarchal and there are lots because it's su- got such a long tradition and it's always been I know there'll be people listening that say don't say this Isabel but it has always been very elitist even if there are pockets of it that are trying or have been trying for a long time to change that Mm. but 
therefore, you know, there are these different hoops that you have to jump through and there are these different processes and different people that have to, you know, say yes to something or, yeah, it's it's understandable that you would come to that, that especially someone in your position would come to that conclusion. And also, you know, you, you go through three years of a, a degree and you're a different person and that's how it should be. Yeah, absolutely. You shouldn't come out the other side and be like, yep, I want to do exactly what I thought I wanted to do when I was mm-hmm. 19, 20. You know, you should come out the other side saying, no, I, I've changed because of this experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and all of that experience is totally valid, whether, whether or not, you know, you decide against you know what what you originally went in thinking absolutely I think in some cases you know I was really glad for some of those negative experiences and actually while you were talking I was just reliving that I was I just remembered a very specific incident that happened actually at uni and it wasn't it was an extra curricular kind of workshop that was being put on which I ended up taking part in and it was for a, for an ensemble like a, a professional ensemble to come and perform student works but it was mostly for MA students or PhD students at the time but I somehow just wangled a little place in there and um, I had this really funny experience with a, with one of the performers who was male clarinetist and I'd written this sort of pseudo Middle Eastern sounding piece of music and I, I said I'd said, already said that I wasn't sort of academically that well educated so my scoring was kind of pretty messy and atrocious so that when it came to the workshop day and this is why I hate scoring now because it's just it brings back awful memories but it came to the workshop day the uh, clarinetist sort of in front of the whole group that were there some listening some of some of the students and the rest of the the kind of ensemble singled me out and basically just laughed at me just said what's this and pointed to the score and I'd I'd done a thing where I'd done a kind of a note crossing a a page turn so it was impossible for him to play it's like rookie error don't play the fucking clarinet you know I'm sorry I'm a student but he 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 just made such a point of embarrassing me successfully in front of one of my tutors in front of a lot of students and in front of you know whole women I I, despite my appearances perhaps I don't know what appearance I gave off but I was not a confident person Mm -hmm. and had gone through you know a lot of similarly embarrassing and and horrible experiences through school so I was like oh my god I feel like I'm back at school this is fucking awful I'm so terrible at, at composing this guy has just made me feel like such a loser Luckily for me, someone actually stepped in and kind of said, oh, you know, this is, you know, really praised the piece and focused on obviously like what that guy should have been fucking focusing on, which was the fact that I bothered at all. I didn't even have to, you know, to just be part of this workshop. But I just remember going away from that thinking, God, I never wanted to experience that again. And, you know, maybe I need to sort of, yeah, step away from this world a little bit. So, you know, it was partly kind of self-realisation, but also, you know, just a really negative experience where a man gets off on just belittling a young woman. And, you know, I don't know what he's doing now. I don't remember his name, but, you know, fuck him, fuck him. Because, you know, all of that, all of that. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully the clarinet's very unpopular right now in in session recording, whatever the fuck he does. But, but, you know, actually, that kind of feeling, that kind of moment where I, I was made to feel incredibly small, and it was very deliberate, and it's not the first time it's happened from a man towards yeah. me. In fact, it's not the first time, unfortunately. That sort of moment was exactly the sort of moment when I began Gazelle Twin, where I wanted to take that moment 
swell it up and become the monster that was, you know, able to retaliate in that moment and to, to overpower those kind of people and to take on that kind of feeling and, and flip it on its head and just let rip. And, and you know, those moments are really important. Those are, those are like the gold of those kind of negative experiences because that is the stuff that you can channel and you can channel it any way you want and in a live situation even better like it's it, there have been a few times where I've performed as gazelle twin and there've been blokes squaring up to me and I've been able to completely shut them down for the first time in my life you know I'd never be able to do that publicly and it's it's amazing it's just so fun so when you say I mean it's it's really it's really fascinating to hear what that catalyst was for starting gazelle twin and it makes so much sense with the energies because it's not just one energy. It's like there's energies. I can feel the kind of simmering tension in Gazelton. And I can also feel in certain tracks, it's just explosive rage. And then I can also feel in certain tracks and personas, which I really want to get onto later, this kind of grotesque, monstrous identity as well, persona or threat. And it's something I love about the whole project I don't know if you see it as a project or that's just your you as a musician I don't know but that's really that's really kind of interesting to know where that catalyst was coming from for you and also just to kind of think about how incredibly rigid certain parts of music can be Mm. you know it's so rigid and I think this is why some people enjoy these sections of the industry and, and types genres of music it's so rigid that you always know what's right and wrong you know, so that guy is very safe. He's always going to know what's right and wrong because he follows the rules, you know. But then it means that you miss so much because you're rigidly being kept inside these rules, whereas somebody else can see beyond any mistake you've made in the score and say, but this is a really good piece, you know, get over it. Like, <laughs> for me, that was always why that world always felt really a, a lack of creativity. Because to me, creativity is seeing what's in front of you and saying, right, how do we make this work? How do we pull this together, whether that's you on your own or you working with other people? And how do we get resourceful and roll our sleeves up and, you know, make the best of everyone's what everyone's bringing to the table? And you're right. You know, there are unfortunately certain guys that do get off on putting a young woman in her place, especially a young woman who they maybe think has been getting above her station. You know, oh, it's that sweet that you've tried to write this piece, but you've made a mistake. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. obviously not a professional and I can't work with you. <laughs> yeah. and let me Especially show you what, what it saying. is. Yeah. yeah. Let me yeah, show exactly. you what it is to be professional. Yeah. It's, yeah. he probably thought he was doing me a favour, which I know in an ironic way he, he did. Yeah. There's always going to be those guys. And it's not just guys, you know, the women, there's a lot of women that do that to other women too for their own special reasons. So, yeah. But it's just about how you take that, isn't it? Yeah. And you use that again, you know, as another power, really. Yeah. Definitely. So then you, you finish your degree and you stay in Brighton. And is this how Gazelle Twin starts becoming a project, an identity? Are you regularly performing? And then, you know, how long is it till you're putting your Gazelle Twin album out, your first one? So well, I graduated in 2006. Very quickly after uni, ended up forming a band actually with some of my, my classmates because I, I was really, like I said, I was really missing performing and I really just wanted to get back to making music and enjoying it again. So we just had a real blast just for a couple of years, just gigging around Brighton mostly. It's a couple of London shows, but mostly Brighton and just having fun, making music, a whole kind of mashup of all kinds of 
weird experimental electronic stuff with jazz with kind of classical stuff we were all really into just making a lot of noise and throwing everything at it and we had a lot of fun and it was great for me to just get on stage and start figuring out what it was that I wanted to do and I think it was sort of the first thing that I did was around 2009 as Gazelle Twin I think because I I was finding performing as myself then I was finding issues with how I felt on stage and what I felt I was expected or what I expected of myself through the kind of lens of women in music and women in you know sort of contemporary culture and started to just get kind of get sick of that as well so I just thought look I don't want to kill my love for music because I hate how I feel on stage and I hate the expectations and I hate the self-consciousness that I feel and I hate you know the, the reliance on fashion and being you know having to look like a model or wanting to look like a model even and trying to go against those kind of urges so I just sort of I just took a stop check again and just and just wrote a list of all the things I hated and my experiences that I'd had and all the things I wanted out of music and all the things I wanted to kind of be able to explore and not not just kind of it wasn't just about kind of you know making a point making a sort of feminist point or anything but sometimes it was just as simple as like being able to explore themes that I'm that aren't limited to my body that aren't limited to my little frame on on stage and my face and my voice I wanted to be able to expand it I wanted to be able to kind of have you know like a sort of orchestral scale show about something you know big and meaningful and I didn't feel like I could do that as a kind of solo performer and you know talking between songs and being kind of this sort of you know fairly meek person shy person on stage so a lot of those things I was writing down you know I want to feel this I want to be able to do this and and Gazelle Twin was going to be my my ticket out of that or into that world and also you know having seen a a few performances that really inspired me like I I always talk about the Fever Ray performance that I saw in Brighton it's the the only time I'd ever seen anyone performing in full costume with a fully immersive show it, it was more the visual than the musical at the time, although I loved that album. But it was just this kind of, you know, penny drop moment where I was like, ah, OK, yeah, I don't actually need to even worry about me. <laughs> I don't even need to really be me. I can be anything if I want. You know, I can choose and I can change that. I can change that whenever I want. And it was it was an awesome moment where I first got on stage in a costume that covered my entire body and face and I totally got addicted to it. (laughs) So when you were first starting out performing as Gazelle Twin well I guess one question before this is you know looking at that live gig that Fever Ray did and thinking about that kind of performance was there any part of you that felt a bit of kind of overwhelm or confusion of how do I do this because you're not unless you've gone to you know like art college and you've studied performance art or something, you're, you're not definitely not going to have been taught that kind of performance in your music degree, I'm guessing. So putting that together, did that feel scary or did you or did you feel like, no, I know, I know how I do that? Yeah, no, I, I never, I never worried, actually. I think when I was doing my A-levels, I did A-level art, A-level theatre studies, A-level English. And the theatre studies and the art, it was very close call between me doing art, at, you know, going to, to study art 
or even possibly studying theatre or becoming an actor, which I'm so glad I didn't because it would have been awful. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and that and music. So art in my family and in my my world has always been as strong as music. Music won out in the end, but, but art's been there from day one and, and I still love sculpture and drawing and painting and making stuff. So so both of those things, I was very lucky to have amazing teachers and amazing support and loads and loads of opportunities to sort of perform, make crazy things at school with my friends. I kind of felt like I was already there. Mm-hmm. I felt like that kind of theatrical, kind of artistic creative ability was there and resourcefulness that I had and I, I was already kind of experimenting with that in different ways in how I would dress and how I would sort of express myself and how I decorate my house and stuff so weirdly it felt very natural to just go straight into that and go and get some curtains and make it into a sort of cloak and buy loads of shit off eBay and just make these weird costumes I wouldn't say much has changed since then I mean I do maybe I've kind of slightly refined that approach but I don't know I still kind of love chucking stuff together and making Mm. these weird you know not especially kind of well crafted but you know very layered symbolic strange creation that's as much fun to me as actually making the music and performing the music is making those those sorts of things as well yeah and I can definitely see that in you know the work that you've put out over the years I'm wondering, like, when you were first performing, was it you and, like, a backing track? Or did you have a live setup? Were there other musicians on stage with you? It was a mixture. So to begin with, I, th- I was sort of set on having a full band and having lots of people in costume and, you know, having a real kind of proper go of it. And I did. And I was lucky to know a few musicians and my husband, who's a musician, he was in quite a few of the shows and ex-band members and then you know just loads of people that I was lucky enough to to sort of get to you know spend that time working with me and performing with me but I think after a few shows I just I didn't feel like it was quite right I wanted more simplicity I wanted a bit more sort of control over how I could sort of get the sound out live that acoustically didn't really work because I was composing this really electronic music with loads of effects on my voice and stuff and loads of synth and what I needed really was like a full analog setup live, but that wasn't going to happen. So I had to call on, you know, like drummers and people who were playing other instruments. And it just, yeah, it just didn't have quite the right effect. Plus the kind of whole cost of it all, schlepping around loads of gear, costumes for everyone, the timing, you know, and you know, in these early stages, you don't get paid anything for these shows. So it was a lot of like, oh, how am I going to do this on a bigger scale? How, how could I ever tour this? It would be impossible. Lots of kind of practical, boring stuff that just led me to, by the time I had written my second album, Unflesh, that I was ready to just do away with all of that and just go with backing track if I needed to. It was all about the character and the performance and the voice and where previous album, The Entire City, I'd been focused on, you know, there's a huge visual world that I wanted to create that I just couldn't because I just didn't have the budget or the opportunity, really. With Unflesh, I just decided I'm the visuals. I don't need projections. I don't. Need, I am the visuals. If, if, if I'm not interesting enough, you know, in my costume, in my voice, in my performance, then it's not working. It was a big challenge because I wasn't sure if it was going to work and I wasn't sure if I was going to pull it off. Um, I still wasn't terribly confident as a performer at the time, but I ended up doing a show in the BFI of all places, performing like really, really early sort of versions of unflesh music 
just before a show by Cozy Fanny and Chris Carter. And it was like, wow. I was just like, how the hell? <laughs> How did I end up here? It was an invitation by another electronic artist, Scanner, who was kind enough to give me this this spot. And I don't think he knew what I was going to do. <laughs> so when I turned up in this like blue hoodie and these pulling these tights over my face backstage, and Chris and Cozy was sort of sat at the other end having a cup of tea, being really lovely. But I, at the time, I didn't know them at all, and I just thought, what the hell do they think of me sitting here? I felt like such a bloody idiot. <laughs> and um, I had these, uh, I had my friends Johnny and Owen who were doing sort of live sampling with me, and they were dressed up in these red hoodies. And <laughs> I just remember this feeling. I was like, this. I wanted to run out of the building. Basically, I was so nervous because none of it had really. We hadn't really performed any of it, and it was mm. it was a real experiment. So yeah, I, I was so nervous. But the second that we finished, actually not the second that we finished, after the show, I was convinced it was a complete disaster, and I felt. I was like, why the hell am I doing this? What the hell is wrong with me? Why am I doing this? This is stupid. But afterwards in the bar, <laughs> I uh, was introduced to a few people who were just like, I've never seen anything like what you've just done. I felt like I, I really want to make a music video for you about it. Oh, and, wow. And then this, and, and everyone was like, I've just, I feel like I've just seen a horror film, but um, but it wasn't a film. And it was just like, I, I, I could tell that I baffled people. And I was like, oh, shit, it worked. Yeah, that's exactly how I wanted to feel. Um, that's exactly what I wanted to create with this kind of character i wanted it to seem like this kind of strange cronenbergian vision where there's this kind of freakish little character that's just appeared in this like really brightly lit cinema and there's you know there's no film but it's just this person it's it's exactly kind of what i hoped would work so um i got really lucky i got really lucky and and uh, yeah and from that point i think i i started to feel i was on the right track really yeah well, maybe we could talk a little bit about the first album, The Entire City, because I know that you're reissuing that. Before we get into the sort of music side of it, I was just wondering, just thinking about your career trajectory, was this album something that you released yourself or did you release it through a label? Did you have a management by that point? Yeah, it was it was a weird time, actually. So I'd, I'd had management. I was very lucky to have through, through Connections in Brighton, which is a lovely, amazing, supportive network of loads of creative music professionals and and people just starting out so really it's just such an amazing kind of melting pot of people I was really lucky to be approached by an ex-music journalist Gary Mulholland who, who managed me for a few months really as Gazelta and he was really supportive and really tried he wanted to get away from journalism and into management and towards me and a few peers he was super supportive and introduced me to a few labels and things like that and got me set up with some people to sort of help me mix and produce some of my my tracks into singles for the entire city but at the time when it came to releasing it I was offered a deal by a label which was kind of a bit of a hobby thing for someone luckily I didn't go with it it would have been a bit of a disaster if I'm honest at the time I was then lucky enough to be able to fund it myself Uh, but unfortunately I, I didn't end up having management through that Gary had a book deal and had other stuff to do and it just kind of fell on me really circumstances just fell on me to sort of do it myself so I was very very fortunate to have been introduced to people that were willing to help me and to have some cash to be able to do it so it was really a complete DIY effort even down to I mean I didn't even tend to release vinyl or CD I didn't know anything about 
how you release vinyl or how you distribute it or anything. But again, I was lucky enough to be introduced to a distribution company who offered to front the, the costs of the vinyl. And I very quickly had to design the artwork and, you know, get, do all of that, which luckily I, I knew how to do graphic design because that's what I was sort of doing for money, basically. And oh, right. Okay. Musician. I was kind of a self-taught musician as well as self-taught graphic designer. So, yeah, it all kind of fell on me to do it. And it happened. And I was incredibly lucky to get set up with a press person and, and get reviews and yeah it was it feels like it was such a long time ago but it was like wow I really cut my teeth on that one had a lot of help and a lot of um amazing sort of support for it but um yeah it was a it was a rush to sort of do it all and to learn learn about all of that stuff great well we could talk about the reissue what are you doing for the reissue that is kind of different or yeah on top of what the original release was for the entire city so it was 10 years old last year last September or July slash September which I just couldn't quite believe really and I hoped to be able to reissue the album on vinyl and CD because it's it's long out of print by then but just with everything that was happening with pressing plants and things like that obviously the delay has happened so it's now coming out on the 29th of April on a completely redesigned pack so it's on coloured vinyl and it's beautiful new design featuring the original artwork by Susie Moxay and on top of that so the album itself sorry is completely as it was I haven't I haven't remastered or, or remixed anything much as I probably quite like to go back and change some of those compositions I decided no I've got to leave it as it is can't change it but in addition to that I'm also releasing what I'm calling a sister album which is related to that material it's kind of material that I had at the time that I was writing at the time and shortly after that time where I didn't release it because I, I made Unflesh and I really wanted a very clear sort of gear change with the way I was producing and, and making music and performing. But I still had all this material, which ended up going into a library album. So sort of used, used for basically like commercial music. So I just thought like with this 10 year reissue, it'd be really nice for people to hear some of those other songs that didn't make it to the album that they might, you know, that they might want to hear. And so that album is called, that sister album, mini album is called The Wastelands. So it's, yeah, accompanying the release and it's got another related piece of artwork by Susie Moxay and it's on really nice vinyl and it's just a really nice package it's really satisfying to release to re-release something and kind of do it a bit more justice given the fact the first time was very it was all very rushed really yeah yeah and I, I think you know many musicians especially if they're not on a major label will relate to that that your first release is where you cut your teeth and it is where you learn even things like my first album that I released, I didn't even know that like albums got mastered. So I didn't yeah. master it. <laughs> <laughs> so I re-released yeah. it as a mastered version later, but because, you know, you, you just, you work these things out as you go. Yeah. And it's okay. It's okay to do that because, yeah. you know, you know, you only think about all the recordings that are like, you know, classic you know legendary recordings of music a lot of them are just you know shit quality because because they weren't made in really really high-end kind of glossy digital studios and I I really like that I like the fact that we can still we can still you know get away with that stuff 
now yeah. because ultimately it's the ideas isn't it and it's the way that it's presented and sometimes you know those elements of, of rough and readiness are, are what make it just even more special I'll admit on the on the first going back to some of my mixes for the entire city first thing I'd ever produced properly the first thing I'd ever mixed I recorded it in my tiny little place in in Brighton on a really cheap sound card on a really cheap in fact, later realised the microphone I had, which was a Beta 58, was, wasn't even a real one. It was like a fake one I bought off eBay. <laughs> so I recorded it on that. You yeah. know, so I filmed all the videos in my in my little swivel chair <laughs> on, my, <laughs> on my webcam. And, you know, some of the vocals weren't even properly EQ'd or even EQ'd at all on that recording. Mm. So, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just, it's, so what, you know? So what? Yeah, it's, so it's what? It's a I nice mean- little memento of, okay, that was where I was then and... Uh, you know, I've learned all of this stuff, but yeah, it still sounded all right. It's, yeah, it's, definitely. It was, it was, you know, passable. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and the thing is, unless you would have made that album, you would not have learned everything you needed to learn to then make the next one and the next one and the next one. And I think that's a really important lesson for anyone listening that you absolutely shouldn't wait until you think you know enough yeah. about recording and production to get started. Oh God, Just yeah. get started. And I always say, like, never, never apologise for getting started with this stuff. Like, that, you will come across dickheads. Like, there will be dickheads that make you feel small because, you know, you haven't EQ'd something or you didn't realise things needed to be mastered or whatever. But they're not the kind of people that you want to be judging whether you're supposed to do this stuff or not you know so yeah it's I think it's very healthy for people to hear that process that you just described and then when it comes to kind of the concept of of the album when you were making it what's the world that you were trying to portray or that was in your mind I think uh, with the entire city it was it was a culmination of lots of things that as an aesthetic things and art and films and books and things that I was just really immersed in for a long time. I think I hadn't made that amount of music for quite a long time and it all came out in that. So, so in it is a lot of kind of religious stuff. So I sort of grew up as a Christian in a, in a sort of Christian family. And I was very interested in, the Bible and the language in the Bible and the ideas in the Bible and the whole idea of evolution and, you know, and versus creationism. And I'd kind of grown up sort of being quite pious. And I talked about how I used to love listening to choral music. I loved getting that kind of feeling of, of, of meaning and purity and spirituality from music and from, you know, the imagery of, of, religion and and Christianity specifically and things like that I was really interested in that and the ritual of it and then as I sort of became more interested in philosophy and kind of moved away from from that kind of crutch as it were I I kind of I really enjoyed sort of still going into that world and sort of unpicking it a little bit so there's a lot of that in the entire city there's a lot of kind of parable like writing in it lyrically and there's a lot of kind of focus on being kind of betrayed by by religion being betrayed by teachings that aren't really you know, kind of true and aren't really reality. There's a kind of sort of playoff there, but then there's also kind of just sort of fascination with nature and, you know, the cosmos. And it's, it's very metaphysical kind of me kind of just sort of summoning all these metaphysical kind of intrigue, really. Together with kind of, I was reading a lot of Joji Ballard at the time and a lot of his books about sort of future kind of earth where everything's drowned in you know the sea levels have risen and you know there's this kind of return to nature where you know these kind of species that have been long 
extinct have returned and plants have grown enormous and it's just just things like that where there's this kind of projections into the future projections of humanity in the future and but looking back into the past I mean it's kind of themes that I'm always kind of thinking about but with the intensity it was it was about really kind of just exploring how that would look I suppose how that kind of world would would show itself and what kind of person or thing would be communicating some of these mm. ideas. I, I can't say it's the most sort of focused album. There were lots of lots of different things going on. It wasn't necessarily sort of singular as as Unflesh or, or Pastoral turned out to be. It was a landscape. I always talk about it as my sort of landscape album, mm. if, if you kind of think, whereas my other ones sort of more portrait albums. Yeah, so it's kind of more about a world inhabiting this kind of past civilization really that's kind of long gone and ghosts and aliens and kind of all these kind of things mixing together all things that I'm really interested in but it's yeah it was in its kind of it's kind of early form mm, and, and that makes it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about it being more of a landscape and the other albums being more a portrait because as well as the concepts that you're just talking about just musically and particularly in terms of your voice and that there's less of a sense of a kind of central character in that first album. And and the way that you're using your voice is, in comparison to Unflesh and certainly pastoral, is definitely not as at the forefront. And it's definitely got not got the same, I don't know, kind of power or commanding tone, if you know what I mean. So yeah, it's more like it is more like you painting this the scene, this picture. But maybe you could talk a bit about the musical choices. And actually, if we could actually zoom into one of the tracks, I Am Shell, I Am Bone, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that was made and the choices behind that. Yeah, I Am Shell, I Am Bone. That, that was one of my really early sort of tracks in that album. I think what you'll hear in that is a very strong influence of the, the soundtrack to The Terminator <laughs> by Brad Fidel, which I go on about in every single interview and every playlist I make includes a track from that soundtrack because I I absolutely rinsed it as a teenager but I love it still I love it it's a minimal bleak amazing early electronic album and it's it's very defining of of a whole wave of electronic music I think from sort of 70s 80s onwards so uh, that was hugely influential in, in that production in that I wanted it to sound I always felt like the Terminator sounded like it was made underwater but it was like this kind of really strange mixture of really industrial bleak machine-like kind of music but under this kind of really weird veil of water cloudy kind of feel and I just loved that aesthetic I just wanted to kind of create something like that really so in terms of kind of musically I was just channeling you know a long time a long period of listening to that that out that soundtrack but also with something maybe more melodic and driving vocally. And I think lyrically from where I was coming from is I was really addressing ideas of creationism, really, and how I think I was thinking about manta rays. <laughs> I was really obsessed with manta rays at the time, um, which is why they feature in the video for that song. And I, I was just interested in how the, the idea that life, all life comes from the sea. And that is, you know, that's a provable thing. There is evidence for that in the ground, beneath our feet, in our bones, in our in our anatomy. And it's unquestionable. But yet people question it and, you know, they'll argue with, you know, the skull in their own head to say that, you know, things are otherwise. So that's that's what 
I was sort of interested in sort of thematically with that song. I'm made of something that in the you know that comes from the sea, and I still am of the sea. The textures in it. So thinking about that, you know, you can hear there's obviously that really nice deep synth bass that comes in at the beginning, and then there's these quite kind of short, delicate beats as well. And then there's you know mid and high synths that sweep over things, and obviously lots of backing vocals. But with the synths and the beats, was that all done on MIDI, or was that done using modular synths and you know other kind of analog synths, um, or is that all done in the box? Yeah, no, I, I had no access to any analog synths for that. I, I was I was making I made everything in Ableton for that album. So um I think it was Ableton seven was the first one that I had. So um everything on there would have been yeah, plugins, presets yeah. actually, not even plugins, just presets. So yeah, and voice. I, I've I've always I've always used voice in um in a way that I try to sort of emulate synth sounds with it and try to blend blend with synth so that there's a little bit more of an organic feel in the yeah. in this sort of midi clip sort of crispness you know there's 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 a certain digital sheen to stuff that I don't always want in there that I like to sort of muddy up a little bit with voice yeah I was going to ask about that because like you're saying what it sounds like is you've run it through a plug-in that is synthesizing or making your voice sound like a synth but is it that you've just followed the melody line with a synth part and you kind of phase that in in the case of the lead vocals no I don't think so I think I can't even remember much now about what I I need to go back to those really old sessions and have a look (laughs) but yeah I mean I, I I think probably I was I was putting my voice through I don't know if I used I I ended up using a a a vocal effects pedal which I still use or we used up until recently a Boss VE20 I don't think I used it on the recording because I think it was something I needed for live rather than in the studio. But it was a similar thing where I'd add kind of a bit of chorus and there'd be there'd be maybe some octaves in there. Um, there'd be some delay or there'd be a bit of um, distortion. I think it was just a combination of those things. I think chorus, chorus was always a favourite for me. I was like the, the fact that it kind of synthesised my voice slightly. Cool. Okay. Well, in the interest of time, we're going to skip over Unfleshed. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. And then go to Pastoral. And obviously that's quite a big leap because the entire city is 2011, Pastoral's 2018. But I felt like it'd be really important to look at a track from Pastoral because it feels like from the outside, Pastoral was the album that really kind of put Gazelle Twin into a bigger platform. Or maybe yeah. that's just yeah, you know. No, I'm, that, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But I, I, I guess so. I guess so. I think, I think Unflesh had done a lot of the groundwork. I think I think I'd had stuff picked up from Unflesh. I'd had stuff picked up internationally. So I, I toured that album in America and I'd done sort of gigs in Australia and Singapore. And I, it, I that that album particularly had kind of taken me on a journey I never thought I was going to go on. But I think Pastoral was probably as a follow up. And also just with its themes and its kind of impact at the times in our, at least in in where we are in the UK around that time, 2018, or at the time I was writing it, 2016, 
ish to 2018 it probably made yeah more of a kind of impact through the kind of momentum I already had but then through the themes that I was addressing which was you know kind of yeah like nationalist sort of patriotism and yeah. Brexit and yeah all yeah of yeah and and I think you know the, the character that's on the front cover and that you were performing as is so strong and so eye-catching and so yeah I, I think that that definitely to me that seemed to really solidify pastoral as a real statement or something that people really you know took notice of and a, a bit like what you're describing with that gig at the BFI of like oh never seen that before wow <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like a kind of um like a jester but that lives on a council estate or something <laughs> yeah so, sort of yeah I think it was I, I'm interested in demons so before we came on the podcast I, we were chatting about what we might talk about and you'd asked about um, or you'd mentioned what kind of ideas and concepts and, and the idea of grotesque in my work and all the things that kind of come visually into my work and, and then thematically demons are a thing that I've always been interested in so it goes from from interest in religion increased Christianity and ideas of good and evil through to personal demons which I was addressing in Unflesh which I was letting myself become my own demon basically also acting slightly demonically too which was fun and then also in, in pastoral I was thinking about social demons and scapegoats and the way that we use, you know, we use people, we use kind of, we use class quite specifically in the UK or even I'd say in England specifically. Yeah. We're really great at dividing through class. And I felt like we have quite a a, a deep culture of, you know, demonising the working class and I think that all of that is tied up with this kind of lurch into conservatism. It's all tied up with where things are at now, mess of education and mess of kind of misinformation. And I, re- I wanted with pastoral and that identity to really to focus in on those things. It wasn't necessarily about making fun. It, it absolutely wasn't about making fun of or even appropriating that. It was mm. about showing what jesters would have done in their day would have been to imitate and mock and and make you know light of the social kind of cliches of of that time and that's what I was doing with the jester and you know I wanted to kind of bring that to light really in 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 a kind of very strange way admittedly but I, I felt like it had to be something like that yeah to sort of make a point really yeah I think it, I think what works so well is that there is that kind of at the time a lot of the messaging in the political campaigns was in one way quite mischievous. I mean, it always is. It's quite deceptive. Facts are inflated. Promises are made that can't be kept. And so when I saw that character at that time, it also made me think of that, of a character that's a bit tricksy, you know, a character that you can't quite trust, that is going to maybe try and entertain you, but you can't trust them and they're, you know, maybe even quite sinister, and so it also made me think of that. And, and also, but like I was saying, it's kind of like a jester, but then you can see all these very modern looking clothes that you do associate with particularly working class men, you know, like tracksuit bottoms and a cap and things like that. So then you're morphing into all of that as well, which is miles away from Boris Johnson. And also then it's harking back to an older England, which obviously the follow up collaboration album, Old England, really helps to kind of dive into that even more. But it's harking back to that old England that nobody really even knows what that is, can't, has no living memory of. And yet 
we're obsessed with going back there in England. Scotland and Wales and Ireland have their own versions of this. Yeah, you know. sure, yeah. So, yeah, I just think that character really, even though it is it is a strange, but it's supposed to be, I presume, and and it encapsulates those things. And, and I think there's something very menacing about it because it's taking that form of the jester that's supposed to be quite entertaining, but it's also quite tricksy yeah. and not trustworthy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I always referred to it as the red imp, actually. I never really called it a jester. It was it was an imp. It was this kind of this menace really that was kind of, yeah, cheeky and jaunty, but also threatening and and evil, really. <laughs> like ultimately. Yeah. Playing that as a performer was really it was fun, but it was it was I think it was probably quite menacing to watch I I don't know I don't know because there's only so physical like you know you, a, a woman of my frame can be on stage but I felt like when I was dressed as the jester as the red imp I could be pretty frightening it would kind of shift from being like the voices in it that I would be channeling through this imp would be would go from kind of you know commanding King James Bible voice to sort of dear elderly lady folk voice and oh you know, you kind of we're harking back to the day and it was kind of all of these things but it, the menace sort of present in that I think must have been really odd and, and and eerie to kind of see and that was the idea it was almost like being a medium and channeling these kind of ghosts through this kind of strange pagan looking scarecrow thing I don't know yeah it's 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 so there's so many things that it that I feel like it was being it wasn't it wasn't one singular thing but ultimately yeah the idea and the the effect that I wanted from it was exactly as you described luckily of this kind of thing that you can't trust absolutely really well put by you to say that because it's it's exactly what we're in isn't it yeah 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 I mean you can't trust accounts of history necessarily through certain channels you can't trust the actions or the even the the words of one individual in in government you can't it's it's this this sort of odd demonic messy ugly sort of duplicitous creature a lot of countries could probably say that about their their sense of identity and their country's sense of identity there's it's it's built on upon lies and manipulation and you know twisting of, of the truth and yeah it's an ugly beast yeah just thinking about you describing those different voices that you could use and like watching that live on stage and to watch the same character switch into these different voices I think that just absolutely would add to that sense of watching someone play a role you know, and again, with the politicians that we have and the media and, you know, and but even social media with really, you know, really toxic conspiracy theory stuff and just watching that person shapeshift in front of your very eyes, you know, shamelessly almost. It seemed to really mark a point in our culture at the time of what was going on. So I'd love to zoom in again to one of the tracks on this album. So, and I had to choose Better In My Day because it just felt like it epitomised the most monstrous version of the Red Imp to me, <laughs> anyway. Could you tell us a little bit about how that track came about and what's going on in it? Yeah, that one came out really, really quickly. I've talked, sort of when I've talked about making this album, I, I was talking about a period of time where I was I was getting to grips with living in a rural setting having lived in Brighton a very liberal 
buzzing creative arty city and then moving into a very conservative rural community and also becoming a parent and also experiencing the shift of the Brexit referendum and how seeing that you know, seeing that play out kind of in its kind of monstrous ugly way and then seeing it on a local level as well so I would sort of be out being the mum and being out, out with people and, and you know being in the community and doing day-to-day things and I'd just catch little snippets of conversations and things or I'd be in taxis or in the shop or whatever and you know you'd, you'd sort of get into conversations or you'd, you'd overhear conversations and sometimes I'd just be like oh god like the sort of stuff I would hear would just kind of be so so maddening you know along the lines of you know playing into exactly the sorts of kind of cliches we talked about and the, the kind of class divide and all of this stuff and I'd get home and and in the precious time that I had in the studio which wasn't very much because I had a small child to look after I would just feel this this kind of build-up of energy and a surging kind of frustration and rage and, and disappointment and I'd just come into the studio and just have to let rip and sometimes venting would just come out as me imitating those those people imitating those com- those conversations that I'd heard, those sayings that I'd heard, and just kind of taking the piss because it's just so such a relief to be able to just do that, and it just worked its way into my into my into my music as well. So I just had that that kind of bloody phrase better in my you know better in my day. I don't think I'd even really heard anyone say it specifically, <laughs> but we all know it as yeah, a phrase. Yeah. Oh, it was better in my day. Oh, we could we didn't have to lock our doors, or we could go out. You know, we we could do this, that, and the other. And you just get sick of hearing that. You're just like, no, but it wasn't. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it was just me kind of needing to vent that and just become this kind of this kind of character on loop. You know, this kind of maddening fucking you know sort of wise person it's like you know it's just it's the most unhelpful kind of thing to say in, in a time you know to anyone young it's just like well no it wasn't because your your experience was very different everything was different and yeah so yeah <laughs> before I got yeah. one yeah, yeah, it, yeah it was about just yeah letting releasing some of that frustration and and yeah. not, not being able to answer back to, in, in these situations as well. A lot of the time I'm trying to like give my answer and, <laughs> and, and say what I really think, you know, that I, yeah. things that I can't say and things that I can't do, you know, without serious repercussions in public. I, I just do in my music because it's, you know, it's legit then. I can actually get it out yeah. without, without, you know, scrutiny or, or at least without repercussions. about you but like definitely for me I find that when I do then when I am able to just freely express something like that then I also have a bit more clarity about how I really feel you know because you hear and especially if you're recording as well and this is one of the great things about being able to use technology and record and produce and you can listen back and then you can and then you can twiddle with all the effects and all that kind of stuff to even further bring out the the tone or the sentiment you know yeah. And then that really gives you some clarity on, yeah, that's really toxic, you know, or, or that's really funny, you know, or I hadn't thought about it like that, or I don't really think that, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really wonderful way to work to play off your own 
energy like that and to um to get deeper into the mindset of that stuff i think i think just sometimes even just the process of of repeating and looping can help that too i always find that with my music so i I end up using loops and repeated lines quite a lot because i feel like it's it's making things sharpening the focus of things and it's drawing attention to things in a way that you don't necessarily get in a conversation or or in another way and by pastoral, had you started to expand what you were using or were you still using a similar setup, but just, you know, you were more efficient and more experienced with it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Not not really that more, much more sophisticated. I think slightly better sound cards, slightly better speakers, a new, a new version of Ableton. <laughs> but still with the kind of, you know, grabbing what's in front of me, around me. I was using a lot of percussion I got I got my flute back out of the box and my recorders back out of the box yeah yeah out of their little velvety bags that people might remember from school yeah and it was nice I I think yeah the the decision to sort of get the recorders in there was kind of you know I just thought it's nice to have a personal thing this is then this is the beginning of my music journey really is learning recorder but also just in terms of musical kind of relevance of it you know this kind of pied piper sort of figure and the early music and the early folk music and stuff it all just tied in really well so I had that going on the really cheap my little cheap recorders with a swazzle that I got from eBay which is a a little metal thing that you that people who perform as punch for punch and judy use to create punch's voice oh wow it's it's about as technical as I ended up getting I think with that record but yeah I had to kind of figure out how to use it and they're really hard to use so it's like this little bit of metal on a string I suppose it's it's similar to um a jew's harp you know that kind Mm -hmm. of that kind of vibration amplification of metal in your mouth with your with your voice so I used that as well and just basic percussion you know tambourines and whatever just stuff that was lying around my my house some of, probably some of the kids musical instruments I think I use so like baby like toddler tambourines and stuff so yeah just bells any anything that I was fin- together with together with my my basic setup really yeah I, I loved I really loved sampling I, I sampled a lot more in that album so I used a lot of loops of melodies that I was playing like early music style stuff and then looping it back on itself and kind of dirtying it up a bit and stuff I really enjoyed doing that for that album. Field recordings as well, actually. Sorry, field field recordings. Like I'd, while I was writing the album, I'd be usually like listening on headphones when I would take my baby for a walk in his pushchair and stuff. And a, a lot of the time I'd be listening on my phone, but then I might record stuff as well with it. So I think a couple of the recordings are like crows when we were out for a walk and another one was like a street performer in Nottingham who I ended up finding out who they were after I'd sort of released the album and then had to credit them on on a later later, um, pressing. I ended up putting his name on because I didn't know but yeah stuff like that was was fun too just using my my world really around me yeah and by that time were you had anything changed in your career setup like representation management all that kind of thing or was it still similar yeah I I was I was already working with so my my 
long-term manager Steve Steve Malins is is now he's he was managing me from I think after I released the entire city so I think from uh, 20 about 2013 until now so he was he'd been working with me for quite a number of years by then and I had yeah I had I basically had a kind of team of of people that I was working with uh agents live agents and things like that it was definitely a step up from from the entire city where I was doing everything myself and pretty much managing myself after that to having you know a proper kind of setup really which is just as well because I do not know how I would have managed being a parent as well as kind of you know dealing with test pressings and deadlines for artwork and things like that that I just could do for my first album because I was just you know knocking around <laughs> on my computer anyway just you know not you know, having fun life in Brighton but now kind of it's very different yeah it's sort of essential to have that extra help and that that setup and also just because Steve is wonderful and wonderful at what he does and just helps me carve out a, a really clear path for for what I do and doesn't overwhelm me which is which is especially helpful it doesn't overwhelm me with deadlines and stuff so yeah well, that's great and live with pastoral did that change at all were you building in more live elements visually or musically no I remember thinking after I toured on flesh I felt it worked so well so my husband Jez toured toured mostly toured on flesh with me we, we managed to sort of travel around the whole world together perform some really amazing gigs some really horrendous awful gigs but so 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 memorable and I didn't really want to I didn't really want to change that kind of setup. So although we had a kid at the time, it was going to make it more difficult. We did quite a few shows together for Pastoral as well, and in very much the same way as on Flesh, which was for Jez to use samples of all of the tracks and live loop them and build them up live, and for me to just just be doing the vocals and recorder. And that was that, and that's how we did it. And I really enjoyed that. Again, I was the visual. Again, I didn't need... I didn't feel I needed, you know, any sort of backdrop or, or anything else on stage. It was the costume was, you know, crazy enough to sort of to fill the stage and space really. Uh, eventually it came to the point where I couldn't really tour with Jez all the time. He, we had to have, you know, childcare issues. So I ended up bringing in Natalie Sharp, who's known as Lone Taxidermist, to do pretty much the bulk of the rest of the tour with me for pastoral. So it wasn't loads and loads and loads of shows because I physically didn't really want to commit to that I I didn't really feel like I was going to be able to do tons and tons of shows but we did some really really wonderful ones and we traveled a fair bit in Europe and stuff so so it was great it was really great to have that support but I yeah I never really felt I wanted to change that that's the simplicity it's addictive you know when you when you can tour in two suitcases and not have to, to spend loads on flight cases and loads and loads of gear and also just set up at sound checks it was just like yeah microphone switch my pedal on Natalie was uh, or Jez and Natalie both had a lot more to do with the the kind of checking of all of the samples and levels and stuff but it was just yeah it's always been a dream sort of tour so minimally we, we'd take more clothes than than gear which was yeah. <laughs> which is kind of crazy but like yeah. really fun Really, yeah, really yeah. Fun. Well, so the the last track that we're going to just talk a bit about briefly is from 
the album that you did called The Power, which was the soundtrack to the film The Power. Before we go into the track, which the track I've selected is The Well, can you tell us a bit about that film and how that has come about? Because I know that this is a type of work that you're getting more into scoring for film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've been very, very fortunate to sort of find myself getting approached to do scoring, which is something I always wanted to do right from the beginning in those early days of wanting to become a composer. I think I just finished making Pastoral and I was approached by the director to work on a film that she was making. Her name is Corinna Faith and it was going to be basically a collaboration with Max de Wardener, who's, who's a composer based in London. So the director, Corinna, she wanted kind of something that that would kind of articulate the story, which was focusing on a group of women, particularly a nurse based in the 70s, uh, working in a hospital and with this kind of history of trauma. And the issues that the film kind of covers are to do with trauma and and patriarchy and sexual abuse. And it was it was a kind of it's instantly like, you know, intrigued. I was in, intrigued instantly by the by the um, script and what she wanted to do with it so it was like an instant yes and I knew Max from various composition stuff previously so it was, it was really nice yeah so I agreed to to work on on the score and um, I think we we started working on it straight away but I mean the filming wasn't set to start until kind of the following year uh, the following summer 2019 but we, we started just sort of she uh, she wanted or Corinna wanted basically just some music that would help with developing the characters and also just to help with their performance so they were filming on location in a hospital in Essex my music was kind of part of the the kind of workshopping I suppose before before they actually went on on set to film and shoot the thing so that was really cool so a lot of the stuff I was passing through was like existing work and demos that I hadn't that hadn't made it onto pastoral and stuff that I'd kind of side sidelined but but just was like nah it's not you know just didn't use it so the well was actually one of those tracks and it wasn't finished at all it just had these lyrics I fell into a well deep down onto the ground all I could see was black all that couldn't be found and it was just one of those kind of offhand things I'd just written it one day it was an especially dark place that I was in when I was writing it so it's very bleak and she kind of just latched onto that and lyrically it, it kind of worked because the whole premise of the film, The Power, was about the power cuts in the 70s. Again, Tory, Tory government, a crisis with miners and, and, and electricity, fuel shortages and necessary cuts, and that included hospitals. So this nurse starts work. Her first ever shift in the hospital is, is during one of the power cuts. And she has a history of trauma and it's associated with pitch black being in the dark. So it was like, it's just this weird synergy, weird sort of coincidence where my sort of very unformed lyrics and songs happens to just articulate perfectly the kind of messaging and, and, and environment and, and mood of the film. So from the start, that, that unwritten song was kind of part of it. I then developed it as the end credit music for the film and wrote a new verse and kind of added in a lot of layers that we used in the score as well so it was a really nice kind of strange mixing of you know the world of pastoral but also this kind of new 
film, this film of, in this vision of someone else's, which mm. which I really liked. And it yeah, weirdly tied in politically and thematically too. So it's kind of a bit of a dream, really, when things like that happen. And how did you collaborate with Max Tewardner then? How did that work? We kind of mostly did it remotely. And this was, this was through 2019, I was gigging as well. So I was touring pastoral. So we were sharing lots of music between us, but it wasn't kind of crunch time in terms of like really defining the score yet. We were just sharing a lot of stuff. I think that summer, the summer of 2019, when they were filming in the hospital, we went to the hospital to record some stuff there. So we, because we, we wanted to kind of get the real atmosphere of the place and we had that opportunity. So we did a lot of field recording there on one day. And then we kind of went back and just was just sharing files really remotely. And then, of course, 2020, things things were still, you know, being in production and things were still going on. It was, you know, there were delays already with the film, but then the pandemic happened. So then things were even more delayed. But we just continued on as we were, really, sharing music and building up the palette, I suppose. It was a really long, long process, probably longer than most scores would have to sort of develop and then refine but uh I think it was all the better for that just to have that time the long long period of time to to really shape it And, and I know that now you are continuing to develop that side of, you know, what you do, the film scores. And I know that you're now kind of dealing with quite tight deadlines. And maybe you could talk a bit about that, what stage you're at now in your career. Yeah, so, um, well, I think following the following the uh, the two films that I scored, so I, I did another one, I did another score for a film called Nocturne. Um, around the same time, so that came out in 2020 as well. I mean, I'd already already had that ambition to, to become a composer for film and to do films and, and stuff. So I, having had that experience already, I I ended up signing to a, an agency who basically have me a part of the, as part of their roster as a film or TV composer. And through that, I've been lucky enough to, to get offered some work and I'm currently working on a TV series that I'm scoring which is an, it's a new thing for me it's quite an intensive thing it's really fun and that's basically what I'm doing at the moment alongside trying to write another album I'm, I'm basically kind of yeah doing kind of real composing work which is <laughs> kind of if I could look back at myself you know sort of 20 years ago I'd be like ah so you did yeah. in the end you did it but you know in the best possible way where I got to sort of completely live out all of my weird creative you know ideas and, and bizarre characters and stuff but I've kind of managed to win win I say win work I've managed to acquire work through doing that so I'm really lucky I consider myself to be really really lucky to be in the position that I'm in to be able to now you know do it as a a bona fide job yeah and and how about you know the are you making another gazelle twin album then yes yeah yeah, another album what does gazelle twin mean to you now and how does that fit in with 
you know, the the film school work, um, do you think you're going to find it difficult to juggle them? Or do you feel like Gazelle Twins really necessary to, because it's a different type of expression? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm really, really dead set on continuing Gazelle Twin. It's, it's a really essential outlet for me because it's me and it's my ideas and my visual, you know, world. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of essential for my for my health, really, to sort of maintain an outlet for that. I really love actually having a break from that as well. So so doing like the film and TV stuff is also really brilliant because it gives me a chance to just exercise ideas that, you know, that I that aren't really about me and they're not kind of deeply personal. It's not it doesn't require my the same kind of work, but it's equally really fun and really good to sort of build my compositional variety and skills and you know everything plays off everything eventually you know it's it's great to just be making music really as a job but yeah the gazelle twin thing I've been trying to develop the next album for quite a while but I mean I had I had another kid at the end of 2020 I had another child so you know these things take time and having kids changes you you know the way that you not only can work but the way that you view view the world so it has a really big impact on on themes and then we've had this kind of crazy pandemic stuff affect us too so everything's kind of taking longer than I really wanted but it will all play into whatever the album turns out to be you know it will all become part of that so I don't think it will be ready this year but uh hopefully next year hopefully if I get if I get sort of enough time to do it yeah thinking about being a full-time musician and all the thing, all the juggling that goes into that what's your experience been of also being a parent <laughs> yeah it's it's tricky I think after sort of my first experience touring I, I toured with my husband and my my little boy and we did really well to, to tour and, and to do some of the shows that we did given the the many, many challenges of parenting and also because our son is also very challenging in himself, in his sort of behaviour. I don't really know how we did it, to be honest with you, but we did. But I think this time around, I think knowing that I was going to have my second child, I I kind of knew that I wouldn't probably be touring in the same capacity in future, um, at least for a while. So I think we'll probably take a similar approach and not not really expect too much I don't want to not gig because I, I will really miss it if I don't but I think even just with the pandemic gigging now is like it's a huge huge commitment and a huge hugely scary thing there's so many variables so I think there'll be a lot to think about with that but I hope and I, and I do plan to to do some to do some live, live shows but it has to fit around the family and it has to fit around what's kept what what I'm capable of too you know physically and and mentally because the whole pandemic thing is really it's really scary and I'm I'm not immunocompromised but I do have an autoimmune disease which which puts me at more risk than than the average person so you know if Covid's still around by the time I've released this album then there'll be a lot of questions about you know how we do that how we tour and stuff so so yeah I think yeah it's sort of it's bringing all the things together that maybe have made the last couple of years both personally for you and then just why on a wider scale thrown up lots of new questions and new challenges one final thing it'd be great to just ask about as well as thinking about your experience as a, a woman in music and particularly a mother a, a lot of my female friends will say that they definitely see a difference between how stressful it is how difficult it feels being a mother and, and a full-time musician as opposed to some of their male counterparts is that something that rings true for you 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes without saying, you know, as mothers, it's not that no, not so much that we're expected to. I think it's just natural that if you if, for example, you breastfeed your child, then, you know, there's a there's a stronger connection. There's a just more of a traditional kind of thing of, you know, the the, the mum is usually the main caregiver and the dad is usually the breadwinner. There are plenty of people that challenge that, but it's, you know, there's plenty of people that fall into that same category as well. Um, I, I don't fall into that category. I'm very lucky where I'm pretty much the main breadwinner. My husband does work, but he also gives me a hell of a lot of support with the children and, and time it allows me time to work. And I'm super, super lucky to have him and to have that, that set up. But my God, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, especially when they're really young. So when they're not in nursery or they're not at school, to know that, to, to plan anything, for example, to plan to have time in the studio or even just, you know, to do work in the studio when they're at home and, and be able to sort of work coherently um, and efficiently. It's, it's, it's all challenging. But where there's all of that challenge, and I, I say this because I'm very, very privileged and I'm very lucky to have a partner who's, who's here to support me. Where there's those challenges, there's also, you know, there's also the influence that they bring and, you know, the amazing kind of variety and diversity that they bring to how you approach, you know, if, if you work in, like I do, in themes and stuff, there's all of that that it brings. And you can probably hear one of them crying now, I was just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's all, there's there's loads of great stuff as long as, as, as well as all of the challenges. So, yeah, so obviously I wouldn't have it any other way. But it's not easy. And I know I know a few mums working in music who, you know, who just work any hours they can because, you know, they, they have to. There isn't really a choice, especially single parents, like single parents who, you know, single mums who are, who are musicians. My God, I mean, you can't get a more challenging job, really, I think, in some ways, but especially if you're expected to sort of gig and, and go away and things like that. It's it's tough. There's a lot of compromise that has to be made. Mm, yeah. Unfairly sometimes, of course, unfairly. Equally, I've met on tour, I've met parents, uh, I've met dads who, who've, who've equally taken their kids on tour and it's, you know, it's been a group effort. It's not just been about leaving them at home with the mum. You know, it, they've, they've taken them and they've made it work. And that's that's also really inspiring. I think it's always fair to, to big up the dads as well because there, there are some of them out there who are doing doing that as well. Definitely, yeah. No, definitely, for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Elizabeth. It's been so interesting and I'm so glad that you could come on Girls Twiddling Knobs and share all of that. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun to chat. Okay, so I told you this was one of our longer episodes, but I'm sure you'll have enjoyed listening to Elizabeth talk about her work as much as I did. She truly seems to have always been an artist ready to bring something unapologetically unique to her music and connect with her audience through some of the less appealing human emotions like fear, smugness and disgust. As she acknowledged in our chat... These are often qualities mainstream music culture finds very difficult to see women perform, and I find it so satisfying to witness them in Elizabeth's work. I also love the incredibly strong and disruptive character she plays within her music, both musically and physically, and how she masterfully infuses this into her production too. I'm particularly drawn to how she produces her vocals to tease out different, almost monstrous identities. 
If you'd like to find out more about Elizabeth and her work, just head to gazelletwin.com. And I highly recommend you check out the reissue of her first album, The Entire City. This, alongside all the new tracks she's included inside The Wasteland, will be out on April the 8th, and the link is in the show notes. So we've come to the end of another spectacular Girls Twiddling Knobs episode, Knob Twiddlers. But don't get your knickers in a twist just yet, because I'm bringing another fab guest to your ears next week. I'll be joined by Tony Award-winning Broadway theatre sound designer Jessica Paz. Inside, we'll be chatting about what the role of a theatre sound designer entails, some wonderful behind-the-scenes hacks she's designed for stage productions, and her hopes for the industry moving forward. But till then, take care, and I'll catch you here soon. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Jade Bailey. The show notes are compiled by Francesca O'Connor, and this is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, And you know someone else who would love it too. Be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.